Bring greetings this morning in Jesus' name. Blessing to be here. Appreciated the songs and the worship service already this morning. Um, just thinking a bit about in Psalm 8, uh, 3 and 4, David apparently had looked into the heavens and observed the universe, the stars, the sun, the sky, and was awed by what he saw. And his statement was, <clears throat> What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou should visit us him? But I want to look at that first phrase a bit from about three different angles this morning. We won't be able to do justice to it, but we'll see what we can do here in a little bit. So what is man that God is mindful of? Is Why would he? First area, let's just, in where David was looking at, the, um, in seeing the expanse of the universe, seeing the sun, the stars, sun is huge. And at the same time, the sun is actually a rather small star compared to many of them. The sun, big enough that it would, uh, a million earths would fit into the sun. So it is huge. We're about 93 million miles from the sun, just at the right place. If we'd be further away, we would freeze very quickly. If we'd be much closer, we'd be fried, and we'd very quickly become American fries, and the French would become French fries. The Earth is 8,000 miles in diameter, 24,000 miles in circumference, spinning on its axis, making one round in 24 hours which means that the people at the equator are moving along <clears throat> at the outside of a ball, spinning, going through space at about a thousand mile an hour. And we haven't heard of anybody flying off, but that is the speed which you're moving, rotating on its axis. The, um, we are revolving around the sun once a year at a speed of about 66,000 miles an hour, very quickly there. And then our whole solar system, sun, planets, and everything, is within the Milky Way galaxy. Just one galaxy, our little subdivision over on the side. The galaxy alone, the size of that galaxy, is 100,000 light years across. The speed of light. Light travels about 5.88 trillion miles in a year. And so if you travel 5.88 trillion miles a year for 100,000 years, you come from one side of the galaxy to the other. And then there's millions and millions of those galaxies. Vast, vast expanse. <clears throat> we are within one of those circles of the Milky Way galaxy. Our solar system is, would not be safe in the middle, but we're in one of those circles moving along at approximately 500,000 miles an hour. The whole assembly is moving through space, they tell us, I don't know who's got the radar, but moving through space at about 2.2 million miles an hour. And if you add up these numbers, we're moving somewhere around 2.7 million miles an hour right now. It's a nice smooth ride, isn't it? Right here. <clears throat> so even from an hour back, we have moved supposedly about 2 million miles within the vast universe. And in a day's time, we have moved approximately 50 million miles. Cannot imagine, cannot uh, fathom the concept of the 
size of God's creation, his expanse, <clears throat> his universe, what a God, and that he should take an interest in us. So physically, we really just don't show up on the radar. Oh, we're there. Even the earth, basically, when you start looking at it in that vast, the earth basically disappears, just a little nanospeck. So why is God so interested in us? Let's look at our history. Adam and Eve were placed into the garden. Perfect place. Beautiful place. No needs. It was all there for them. Clear conscience. God gave them some instructions of do's and don'ts. And as we know, Satan came along, convinced them that one of the don'ts would be a nice one to have. And so they did yield, they did disobey, and they infected all of humanity that ever lived or will live with sin. <clears throat> 2,000 years later, roughly, man was so evil, so disobedient, that God says, you know what, I'm going to wipe him out and start over, except for Noah and his family. And... Um, so he had the flood and destroyed them all. And here we are about 4,000 years later and all the history in between the Old Testament, the New Testament, and now today, where are we at? Where are, where's man today in their personal lives? Again, doing mostly what each one wants to do or are they sensitive to God? Seems like most of them are doing pretty much what they want to do. They've messed with the family design. God's design for bringing us to him, introducing us to him, so that we would then become his and follow him. They've messed with the, the gender design that God has designed. There's wars, there's fightings, there's killings, selfishness, and a lot of murders. In fact, what do you think the most likely place in America is to get killed. Is it in the cities, with the gangs, on the roads? Where is it? It's in the mother's womb. There have been, since 1973, there have been over 60 million abortions in the U.S. alone. And still going. And I saw some numbers of what happens annually in the world, and I, they were so high, I was scared to give them because I'd have to wonder if they're accurate or not. But um, I think they say New York is one of the higher ones. Almost one in three pregnancies ends in an abortion today in our state here. So where's God in all this? Why is he even interested in us? What, why should he be? Well, that's the two angles. Let's look at the third one. This one I like. When God created everything on the earth, the vast universe, the expanse, the galaxies, the millions of galaxies, the oceans, and you could go on and on and on for weeks, I suspect, for all the trillions of details of creation in the world, and especially the oceans, if you look at that. But all those things he formed with just a spoken word, and they were there, except for man. 
man he formed from the dust of the earth. Then he breathes into man his own eternal breath of life. Completely different from many of the rest of creation. He made man, then he made us eternal beings, and everyone since that has breathed life is an eternal being. You notice that when you have the tiniest baby here, holding a tiniest baby, it has become an eternal being and will live on forever somewhere. He made us in his image, in his own likeness. And there'd be a whole list of things we could look at that would show us how we're different from the rest of creation and made in his image. But we won't do that for sake of time this morning. He made us with a choice. He wanted somebody that with intelligence would choose him. Everything else is like robots. It absolutely does its thing. They can predict where the Milky Way galaxy will be or where the solar system will be, all those things. They can pretty well predict where the animals migrate to and so forth. I don't know if you saw some of the geese migrate again recently. They do it by instinct, by genetics. They're going to do it. But he said he wants somebody that by, with intelligence, will choose him and will choose a relationship with him to see him for who he is and to return love to him for the love he gives us, to return blessings and make his heart glad for the blessings he gives us. Someone who enjoys him, someone who honors him, someone who gives him reverence and worship, someone who obeys him, someone who learns to think like Jesus. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which is also Christ Jesus. Someone who operates in the same principles and patterns that he does. That's what he designed us for. He created us in his image to reflect his image, to be his kingdom on this earth and to be in heaven with him eternally. When God looks down on my life and yours, I wonder what happens. Does he smile and say, keep it up, it's what I made you for. It's not easy, keep going. And pass it on. And someday, I'll take you home to perfection where there's no temptation and no sin. Jesus, looking down, can he smile on my life and yours and say, that's what I died for. That blesses me. Your sin's forgiven. Living in victory, pursuing victory, living in victory, a peace and a joy in your heart in spite of all the sin around and the stresses and the stresses of life, but a peace and a joy. Why is he mindful of us? Isn't that beautiful? We are the crowning glory of all his creation. Us little bitty specks here. What a privilege. What are we doing with it? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this privilege. Thank you that you have let us know that you have made us unique. You have made us for your glory. You've made us in your image. You have a most special place in your heart for us.
and of all the other things that you've made. You said someday you will burn them with a fervent heat. But we go on eternally. And you want us for you now in a relationship and for us to enjoy you and to worship you and to be grateful and to be thankful. And then someday have us with you in heaven eternally. We thank you, thank you. Help us, Lord, to allow this reality to grow in our life that we would be completely committed to you while we walk on this earth and do the things we need to do here. We thank you. Be with us as Father in this service. Direct for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for the day you blessed us with. Thank you for we've heard already this morning and the reminder of how big you are and at the same time your desire for relationship with each of us. Plus, Lester, as he brings what you laid in his heart, that we can be open and attentive to what you have for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> can be seated. Greetings to each one of you. It's a joy to be gathered in God's house again this morning in this way, to worship him together, to hear from his word. feels like we've been challenged so much this morning already to think about God's great plan for us in, in both the devotional that you shared, Ray, as well as in our instruction class, um, our discussion is a little bit on that as well, and Jesus Christ and, and the work he did, and John challenged us to think about why did Jesus Christ come, why Jesus Christ, and, and what, did, what was it that he, he did for us, and um, Ray's devotional especially it seemed like it just really fit in with, with what I have prepared here to share and Ray challenged us to think about you know here we are such a small tiny little part of this immense universe that God created why is God mindful of us why does he even think about us bother thinking about us much less caring so much for us and and today I'd like to think for you to think about in in the sermon today where is God when when it seems like we're going through a storm or when life is difficult when we wonder where is God at because there is times when we and many of you can probably identify we wonder, why isn't God hearing? Why isn't he delivering? I've given my sermon the title, Delay Deliverance. I kind of, it's a term that kind of stuck in my head, and, and I think I, I heard it from, it may have been Paul Tripp or one of the authors, writers that, that I listen to or read a lot. And, and I like those little phrases when it kind of makes it easy to stick in your head, and, and it, it helped me to understand, um, it helps me to understand something about God and, and how he operates. So what do we mean by delay deliverance? Turn with me to Mark chapter 6. I'd like to read here this story, one of these stories that probably most of you are very familiar with. You've, you've, if you grew up being read and taught 
the, the Bible stories out of children's Bible story books, this is very likely one that you've heard repeatedly. So the account of when Jesus walked on water, when he went out to his disciples, here they were out in the sea and they were fighting the waves and Jesus was not with them. So I'm going to read Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. And the question I want you to think about is, where is God at in the storm? And why does it seem that he delays in bringing deliverance? Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and cried out. And they all saw him and were troubled, but immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them. And the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and marveled. For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. This account is given to us also in Matthew 14 and in John chapter 6. And and both of those accounts give us some details that that are missing here. But what what is, is happening here is Jesus sent his disciples out across the sea, and it says it was... Evening, um, the time frame there was probably about at dusk or somewhere around there. He sent them out across the sea and he stayed behind. And here it only says that something about the wind was against them. But in in the other accounts, it it makes that a little stronger. I, I think it was pretty fierce wind that they were fighting against. And And if you look at the timeline of what happened here, um, it appears that they left it around dusk, and it says it was the, the fourth watch of the night when Jesus came to them, which means it was somewhere between midnight and three o'clock, because they had four watches in every night, and it was six to nine, nine to twelve, twelve to three, and three to six. So it would have actually been after three o'clock, the fourth watch. So three o'clock in the morning, perhaps. So there was a time span there of a number of hours when, when the disciples, it appears, they were fighting this storm. They were trying to row their boat, and they weren't getting anywhere. And it also tells us that they were um, several miles, I think it's in the book of John, three or four miles out in the sea, which was something a little over halfway across. So here they were out there in this storm, battling this too far from land, um, you know, to, to turn around or far enough that, that they were in a desperate situation. And what do you think was going through their mind at this time? Now, earlier, just previous to this, uh, there was an account where Jesus was with them in the boat and he calmed the storm for them when they, um, when they got into a storm. They woke him up, he was sleeping, and he made the winds stand still. But here Jesus isn't with them. I can imagine that the disciples are wondering, why, why isn't Jesus doing something about this storm? You know, he was powerful enough to, to calm the winds 
the last time we got into this predicament. Why did Jesus send us out here anyhow? If he is all-knowing, surely he knew what we were going to face out here in the middle of the sea in the middle of the night. Why doesn't he stop the storm from shore? Doesn't he know what's happening to us out here? If only Jesus were with us, where is the master when we need him? Perhaps they attempted to rebuke the winds as Jesus had the last time. Perhaps they screamed, hollered, called for Jesus, but they were too far from shore for him to hear. In this account, we see that there was delayed deliverance. We know that Jesus then came to them and and dealt with that problem. He, He safely brought them to the other side. He made the winds stand still again. But there was a time there when, when the disciples didn't know what was going to happen, didn't know if they were going to make it to shore, where they were wondering, where is Jesus at when we need him? And it seems like this delayed deliverance is actually a fairly common thing for God to do, if you stop and think about it. Um, Noah, when he lived... In the world, it says that the world was corrupt and filled with violence. And the way it describes what was happening at that time, I have to think that it was worse than what we face today in sin and corruption in the world around us. Noah seemed to be the only person in the world that God found that was not corrupt and violent. So he told Noah that what, he's, what his plan is to deliver him to destroy the earth, but deliver Noah and his family. And yet it went many years until that deliverance came. Um, Just doing a little research on that, for some reason in my mind, I'm thinking it was something like 100 years that it took him to build that ark, but it's very likely it didn't actually take him that long, but it was probably over 100 years from the time that God told Noah, you know, I, I have a plan to deliver you until that actually happened. And all that time, whether, whether Noah was building the ark all that time and actually preparing all that time, we don't know for sure. But either way, there was that span of time from, from when this promise was made to Noah, when God started talking to him about this, until it actually happened. And all that time, Noah was living in a violent and corrupt world. Seemingly the only godly man alive. Do you think he wondered why God delayed deliverance? The Israelites, when they were slaves in Egypt, again, why did God not deliver them as soon as it it says that that a Pharaoh came in to rule there that, that didn't know Joseph, didn't know their story, didn't have much respect for them, and things got harder and harder for them as slaves under the Egyptians? Why didn't God deliver them there at the beginning? Instead, he left it go on and on and on for years. There were slaves, and things only became harder. And then when he did call Moses to deliver them, Pharaoh's heart was hardened time after time. When these plagues happened, they thought, okay, now Pharaoh is going to let us go. But no, deliverance was delayed. I also think of Lazarus' death. It tells us very plainly there that Jesus intentionally stayed 
in the town where he was at when he got the news that Lazarus was sick. His good friend, he delayed in going to deliver him. And when he got there, Lazarus' sister said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Do you think Lazarus' friends felt like Jesus was delaying deliverance or even forgetting about them completely? In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, which is some kind of, seems to be some kind of physical ailment or handicap that he had. And he was pleading with God to deliver him. But God said no. And then Jesus on the cross, also his deliverance was delayed. He had to suffer. He was tortured. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For a time, God did not deliver him. Perhaps you have been in one of those situations, or are in one of those situations, when the wind is against you, you're in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night. And you wonder, why does God not deliver? Why does he not hear me? Where is he at? I'd like to suggest that when deliverance is delayed, is because there is something better. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read parts of chapter 11 and 12 here. And there's one phrase here in the book of Hebrews that is repeated quite a few times, and that is better things. We're going to see it a couple times here in chapter 11 and 12. Uh, I'll start with reading the last part of chapter 11, beginning in verse, um, I believe, verse 35. And it's talking here about the men of faith, men and women of faith, uh, the great men who were delivered or who, who God did great things through them. He delivered his people. Um, it mentions Rahab and, and her deliverance when the city around her fell down. Um, Gideon, Samson, David, other men who, who God allowed them to be, uh, to be a tool in his hands to bring deliverance. But then it also says, and I'll begin reading in 35, women received their dead raised to life again. And it says others, others, other people who had great faith. They were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. There are better things. So he's talking here about people of great faith who were not delivered. Who, who willingly 
uh, it says not accepting deliverance. They, they allowed themselves to be tortured because of faith, because of what they believe, because of the better things that they saw ahead of them. They were not delivered because God had better things for them. <clears throat> what are the better things? Let's turn or continue to read then in chapter 12. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. Uh, I'm going to stop right there and just make a few comments in the first four verses. What are the better things that he describes in Hebrews chapter 12? It says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. There was something better ahead of him, and he was willing to endure the cross, to delay that deliverance for the better things. Not only that, that joy that was set before him, he wants to bring to us. Today is interceding for us. He is sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. He wants us to experience that joy, those better things before us. He longs to bring us into that joy also. We'll continue reading in verses 5 through 10. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Do not be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyous for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. One of those better things is the experience of the Father's love, our perfect Heavenly Father. If we don't experience that chastening, then we're not sons. If we are truly his sons, he will chasten us. He will train us, teach us, discipline us, and at times bring us through hard things without delivering us so that we are trained. We can experience the Father's love. Even our human fathers trained us, and we respect them and love them for that. The perfect Heavenly Father will also chasten us or train us. 
If we allow him to do this, we will experience his love. He does that for us because he loves us. One of the better things is the experience of our Heavenly Father's love. And then in verse 11, it talks about the peaceable fruit of righteousness that is there for those who have been trained by it. Chastening is not a pleasant experience. Sometimes it feels like a storm, like the disciples out there on that sea. It feels like we're rowing against the wind, wondering if we'll ever make it through. But as chastening from our Heavenly Father, it yields the fruit of righteousness. I'm not going to take a lot of time to, to discuss what all that fruit of righteousness is. Uh, we could turn to James chapter 3 and, and other passages too as well where, where it talks about the fruit of righteousness. We know that, that sin leads to death and there is consequences for sin. And if we are allowed to continue in our sin, we basically destroy ourselves. There's misery. The consequences of sin, it never takes us where it first of all promises us that we can go. But the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness is what we want to experience. Sin often disguises itself, promises something that looks good, but is not the true fruit of righteousness. Fruit of righteousness brings us joy, brings us peace. It helps us to experience life uh, in a way that, that is fulfilling. The fruit of righteousness is one of those better things that is set before us. Deliverance is delayed at times so that we can experience these better things. What is God doing when he delays deliverance? I have some more things that, that necess- no, I'm not really pulling out of a passage of Scripture here, but I'd like for you to think about uh, that, that some things I think God is trying to show us when He delays our deliverance. He wants to remind us that He has complete control. He's completely in control of the universe. Th- those, those numbers we heard this morning that, that Ray had for us and how... how fast we're moving through the universe and and the timing of everything and and the fact that we're in just the right spot that that there can actually be life here on earth god is in complete control when we believe that it frees us from anxiety it sets us free from from worry from wondering when when are we going to fly off the earth i know we don't actually worry about that, probably not, but in whatever sense that is, we're afraid life is going to fall to pieces. We worry about that. God wants to remind us at times when he delays our deliverance that he is the one who is in complete control. He wants to remind us, too, that the world is a sinful place, and because of that, we need a Savior. Not only our own sin that we need to deal with, but the fact that this world is sinful, this world is only a temporary place where we're living at. We need those reminders sometimes when, when we're in those storms. Why God? Why all these things? He wants to remind us that 
This is not our eternal home. This is a sinful place. The people around us are affected by sin. Creation is affected by sin. And we need a savior. We should mourn the sin of this world and our personal sin rather than curse the pain of not being delivered. Naturally, we want to uh, turn away from that pain. We want to um, curse the pain. But God wants us to mourn the sin. And I think when, when, when we do that, uh, and, and beyond even our own sin, but first of all, of course, we need to mourn our own sinfulness before we can deal with it and turn to the Savior. We need to mourn the sin that we have committed, but also the sin of the world around us. It's, it's easy to despair and to, to criticize and to um, just, just talk about how awful this world is. But how often do we mourn the fact that sin has marred the world? Sin is driving people to do these terrible things. And they need a Savior. God also wants to remind us to be dependent I know that we, we have this way of thinking that as, as we mature, we're supposed to be more independent. And, and in some ways, that's true. Physically, that's true in some ways. Um, maybe not so much spiritually. Uh, God wants to remind us to be dependent on Him. And, and as we mature spiritually, we need to learn to become more and more dependent on Him. Less dependent on other people, maybe, to carry us through spiritually, but more dependent upon God. He wants us not to focus around us or on ourselves, but on Him. Those disciples, as they were in that boat fighting those waves, they were only looking at their situation. They were probably quite worried and scared about what was going to happen to themselves. Their focus was right there on themselves. God wants us to think about Him and be dependent upon Him. And also to be interdependent, which means to be mutually dependent or depending on each other. I think spiritually, in the family of God, we need to learn to be dependent on God and interdependent on each other. We cannot live the Christian life by ourselves, we need each other, and that's why God has designed the church. So God reminds us in the storms when we're not delivered. He reminds us that we need Him, that we are dependent upon Him, and in all these reasons, as you look at creation and and again the the, the vastness of the universe and, and the marvels of creation, the, the insects and the animals, and and the way God made all that. We should realize from that, from just looking at that, that God is in control and that we're dependent on Him. And, and, and even that this world is sinful. We see creation and we see decay and death and, and things not always going right in the world around us. Just by looking at that, we should realize that God wants us to be dependent on Him and wants us to realize that He is in control. But sometimes it takes a storm. In our own sinfulness that blinds us, sometimes we need a storm to learn these things. 
Sometimes our deliverance needs to be delayed so that we learn these things more. That God is in control. Yes, we can see it in the world all around us without going through that storm. But in our sinfulness, we don't focus on that. And all of these things will produce in us humility as we realize how how powerful God is, how little control we actually have on our own lives, how, how sinful we are and the world is, and how dependent we are on God. This brings humility. But again, humility brings to us better things. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, Thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. Matthew 18.4 Whoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And 1 Peter 5.6 Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Each of those verses shows us some better things that are in store if we can live humbly under God. Humility is the the position that God calls us to be in before Him. And as we realize His power, His control, and and His, His saving grace that He has for our sin, it should bring us to humility. And it brings, it is, he says in these three verses I just read, that, that humility, or those who are humble, their hearts are revived. And in humility, we will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in due time, we will be exalted. All these things look forward to something better, to the better things that oftentimes... We only realize when our deliverance is delayed. So while the disciples fought the storm, where was Jesus at? If we go back to Mark chapter 6 there. They were out there in the sea fighting that storm, wondering why Jesus was not with them. Why did Jesus send them out to cross that sea in the middle of the night? They may have been even, just using a little imagination, they may have been angry right then at Jesus because he sent them out across there in the middle of the night. Why couldn't they wait till the next day? Didn't Jesus know that they would potentially face something like this? But Jesus was on shore and it says that he was praying. And I would say that very likely he was praying for them doesn't tell us that there, but we know that Jesus' work on this earth, that time that he was spending there, a lot of his focus was on teaching and training these 12 men to be his disciples, to carry on the message of the gospel. And we know that he spent time praying for them. That was a great concern to him, was their, their growth, their maturity, and, and that they would be able to understand what his plan of salvation was. Very likely Jesus was on shore praying for them. 
when they were wondering, where was he at? Does he even care anymore? And then as he walked out across that water, you know, they at first didn't recognize him. They thought it was a ghost, and they were even more scared. Not only were they having a hard time getting anywhere, now there was a ghost out there. But Jesus spoke to them, and then they realized who he was. Isn't that beautiful? When we listen to his voice, we can receive that comfort too in the middle of our storms. When our deliverance is delayed, remember, Jesus is interceding for you. And remember to listen to his voice. He speaks to us today through his word. Listen to his voice. And I'd like to just remind you, too, that our deliverance is guaranteed. Yes, deliverance is oftentimes delayed, but our deliverance is guaranteed. The very end of the Bible in Revelations chapter 22. We are guaranteed that there is a deliverance coming. And by faith, we believe that that is um, that God is even today bringing that to pass. The Bible closes with these words. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. Surely I am coming quickly, which means without delay. And John says, Even so come, Lord Jesus. May that be our prayer, our desire to, when our deliverance is delayed, to remember the promise that he is coming. He will not always delay. Our deliverance is guaranteed. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's kneel in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us. We thank you for... The, the message that you have for us, even in these, what we sometimes look at as simple Bible stories, children's Bible stories, in these things, this account of, of your walk on this earth and the things you did, we see how great you are and your plan for us. And even though it feels like our deliverance is delayed sometimes, we're going through storms when, when there's sickness and death and sin and corruption around us, thank you that you are present. You are interceding for us, and we can listen to your voice. May you give us courage and faith to continue on and to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Chad, do you have a closing song for us?